ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live, we're here, and we've got a terrific show for you today. If you want to participate, you can on the phone, on the web, or tweet us on Twitter. And as usual, we're covering all kinds of interesting topics from the world of medical practice. Today, we're discussing the little-known unit of elite medical detectives called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, or EIS, with Mark Pendergrast, author of the book Inside the Outbreaks. If you've got a question for Mark Pendergrast, now is your chance to call in or email. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. And our email, sol at reachmd.com. Run out and buy a copy so you can ask him questions. Okay, what else is on our minds today? I'm sure most of you know that many people indulge in chocolate as a way to pick up their mood, especially me. What if it did just the opposite? Sorry to say it, folks, but that's what it may be doing. More details on the show ahead, so stay tuned. And we'll have a look at the current ReachMD poll, all about how much a doctor should know about healthcare administration in order to better serve patients. Also, how many administrators does it take to support one doctor? Or put in one light bulb. Exactly. This is not a joke question, I swear to you. But yes, we will have a surprising answer for you. And later, we're investigating patient diagnosis blogs. Our open web consult request a sign of the times in U.S. healthcare. All this and a few other surprises on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. But first up, our regular feature, Curious Headlines. And today we're focusing on diet, health, and exercise. That's why you've been doing shoulder presses during the show. Absolutely. Let's start with the latest research on a new recommendation to help older people protect their hips. Matt's totally into the study because he does the stuff. But researchers in the Netherlands say that martial arts training appears to be a safe way to teach osteoporosis patients how to reduce the risk of injury when they fall. The researchers worked out a way to train the seniors with hip protectors, teaching them to fall on thick mattresses and the like. Hmm. What do you think, Matt, Mr. Martial Artist? Mr. Martial Artist has many thoughts oh, about this. Oh, So, I, I mean, I guess if they survive the training, that's, uh, that's pretty good, right? But I do have a bone to pick with this study, and you know I meant that pun very much intended. So there were only six subjects of this study, and all of them were young, healthy adults. I mean, think about that. So they basically taught a handful of athletes some rolling and falling skills, and then speculated how seniors with osteoporosis could do it with modifications. I mean... Did did someone pay for this study? I I don't know, but I'm all for turning seniors into kung fu masters, obviously, but that's not exactly conclusive evidence. And honestly, I mean, for example, I might know how to stop, drop, and roll from practice. I mean, I'll I'll grant you that. I've done that for a few years now. I can do that. But... I have to confess, I'm still going to go down hard if the slip or misstep is big enough for me. Well, that's probably just you, Matt, because you're always (laughs) tripping on stuff here in the studio. Um, But seriously, all jokes aside, someone should look into fracture rates in seniors who have martial arts training compared to those who don't. I bet there's a solid difference. Or we can have them break boards or something. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm all for it. I mean, anything to get them in the dojo with a prescription to kick ass, Michael. Yeah, well, cross your fingers, Matt. All right. (laughs) In other news, this might not surprise a lot of you, but a recent paper from the Journal of Studies on Alcohol Alcohol and drugs says the kids who watch R-rated movies are more likely to pick up drinking later in life. Surprise! Mm. The study was done at Dartmouth Medical School with 3,600 middle schoolers and found that those who didn't watch also didn't start drinking two years after testing. Compare that to 25% of kids whose parents let them watch R-rated films whenever they wanted. Now, the authors think there's a connection here because 90% of the films depict drinking. 
Mm-hmm. The kids who watch the R-rated movies become more prone to sensation-seeking, as they put it. So I don't know, Matt. Is this a lot of hype, or is this another testament to mass media's influence on children? Good question. But I think until we figure that out, I'd say parents cancel the family movie night for Ninja Assassin. I mean, just cancel it right out, and uh, I would stick with Enchanted for now. Turn your family to listening to our show. Kids do not drink after watching our show. We are, our show. I have to say, we are about the G-ratedest mm. show out there. Mm. All right, next in headlines, salt reduction, Michael's favorite topic. Mm. It's been a long time coming, but the government is finally attempting to legislate reductions in salt content for processed foods. They'll probably tax it. Probably. The FDA is working on a 10-year initiative to bring down sodium levels, which may lead to the first legal limits on the amount of salt allowed in food products. So is this government intervention in food content a good thing? Well, in a recent New England Journal issue, one article projected that reducing salt intake by just 3 grams per day will reduce annual new cases of coronary heart disease by 60,000, stroke by 34,000, and MIs by 54,000. And this is across all populations in the I U.S. I think that's like a half a teaspoon or something. It's a pretty small yeah, amount. Yeah, not even. Yeah. And not to mention health care cost savings up to 24 billion dollars per year yeah, but who's counting then, then they can like fix medicare in the 24 billion why not and all by reducing each person's salt intake by three grams per day so it's less than half a teaspoon yeah just imagine telling your patients giving up the salt is now mandated by the government what's next <laughs> well i'll tell you exactly <laughs> what's next and that's banning chocolate no if you're depressed no yes the nightmare may become reality for chocolate lovers So the Archives of Internal Medicine reported recently that mood is influenced by chocolate consumption, but not in the way you might think. Higher depression rates were associated with greater chocolate consumption. Now, of course, the authors are saying that there's no causal connection proven here, but the association is now duly noted. And in my case, duly ignored, Matt. (laughs) I'll work work on the salt reduction, but they're going to have to prime my stash of chocolate-covered cherries up from my cold, dead hands. And by the way, (laughs) I just got back from vacation from a restaurant called Salt, and we brought home, no kidding, chocolate-flavored salt, the best of both. I'm going to put it all over all of my food. Oh, that's a nightmare. All right. Well, that'd be a warning to you all. Don't have chocolate-covered salt. It's delicious. But on that note... On to the ReachMD poll. And this week's topic, more about medical administration and becoming a physician executive. Interesting that this topic is in the news so much recently. A recent presentation by David Cutler, a Harvard economics professor and advisor to President Obama, as well as a recent guest on ReachMD, said that doctors' administration is one reason American health care is so expensive. How many people in administrative support on average are needed for each doctor? Cutler's answer? Five. That's Five. right. Five people are administering me. You needed to perform healthcare administrative supports for every doctor. It's probably 10 for every dermatologist. That's amazing. And all the more reason for docs in executive roles, I think, to find means of cutting this waste. But I'd say look before you leap because our poll question this week asks where you think physicians will have the greatest opportunity to improve healthcare. Will it be in reducing medical errors, reducing scarce resource utilization, focusing on preventive health, or by influencing policymakers. No, I think the best way is just to reduce the administrators. I will fire two of them, and I will put the money back into the system. Hmm. That's interesting. So <laughs> I will fire the producers, and we can do the show ourselves. Yeah, I think we might have tried that once or twice. It probably didn't yield as good of results. No, I mean, think about this for a minute. Here I am, one doctor out there <laughs> treating patients. There are five administrators All right. working, pulling in salaries that have nothing to do with patient care to support my taking care of these patients. I didn't even know they were out there. This is appalling. True. I mean, I'll play devil's advocate for you here, though. So let's say that you get rid of even two out of the five administrators per healthcare 
provider. Who's going to take on those roles at that point? Let's assume that there are roles and that bureaucracy hasn't reigned supreme and that they're actually doing nothing all day. Let's assume that there are some vital administrative roles in among these five. Who's going to take over that role? Is it going to be the physicians? Well, okay. You know, I'm not cynical in most ways. Mm. However, I'm willing to bet that five administrators, there's a lot of downtime, that there's a lot of time that it could be condensed. Mm. But I don't know. I don't even know. I'm stunned that there's five people. It seems crazy to me, too, doesn't it? It seems nuts to me that there are five people. When you think about how much goes into taking care of one patient, just the clinical duties for one patient, then you think, five administrators? What administration is going around to make that kind of ratio? The cost of this, where my poor patients are struggling to get their medication, and there's five administrators pulling in six figures a year, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know? That's a tremendous amount of money that is being spent. I don't know, but we'll find out more in the future about this. I'm sure we will be discussing this forever. (laughs) (laughs) Although, With with the chocolate and the salt. For those who do the poll, look at all four options and make your vote accordingly. I think they're interesting. Yep, so go to our poll at reachmd.com slash poll. Cast your vote. Eat your chocolate and your salt while you're doing it. Oh, my God. You are the worst clinical recommender I've ever heard. All right, we'd like to welcome our guest for this week, Mark Pendergrast, who has just returned from addressing the CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service's annual meeting and has recently written a book about this core of elite medical detectives. The book is called Inside the Outbreaks. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mark, great book. So listen, let me ask you, what compelled you to write this book? It took you a long time to write it. It's really a good book, uh, full of fascinating tales, but what got you to write this book? I actually went to high school with an EIS officer, I mean with somebody who became one later, and he told me about it, and I just thought it sounded fascinating, and so I looked into it, and I like to learn new things. You're right, it took me five and a half years, so I figured that somebody should make me an honorary EIS officer and give me a PhD in epidemiology. We'll make you an honorary host here if you want, we can do that. Okay. (laughs) A little bit more latitude in that brain, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, no, it was really interesting. Um, I learned a lot. I think it's a very important subject, and I like to write about things that make a difference. And I think that uh, these folks have made a difference and are continuing to do so. And I'll tell you, I have have a goal in this show, in my brief stint here. That is, I want to convince one of your uh, listeners to consider going into the EIS to apply for this program. It's a life-changing kind of thing. But you yourself came in to researching and writing about this pretty objectively, I would say. Did you not? Yes. I mean, you were going to be looking at both uh, exposing the positive and the negative aspects of the program. Yeah. and I did find a few negatives, but not very many. Um, but mm-hmm. yes, I, ro- I wrote about them. That's really interesting that you kind of came away with how you phrased, you know, the EIS legacy, and we'll get into that. And I like that vision, and we'll play with you. We want one or, I'll go for two, two of our listeners to join the service after this interview. <laughs> it, right. sounds, it sounds, I mean, I was fascinated reading about it, and I didn't know all that much about it. So why don't we go into a little bit of the history of the service and the founder? We know it started during the Cold War, and I'd love to hear just kind of a a rundown of some of the high points from you on the history of where this service came from. Sure. Um, In 1951, Alexander Langmuir had been at the CDC for two years. It was a young, untested organization, really, and most of his friends had told him he was crazy to go there because infectious disease was a dying field that, uh, you know, antibiotics were going to wipe out all the bacteria and you were going to have new vaccines for the viruses. And come on, Alex, don't go there. And he thought they were wrong, and he certainly turned out to be correct. But he couldn't get young doctors to be interested in his program. He had this vision of having these shoe-leather epidemiologists running around, bags packed, ready to go at a moment's notice, 
but they weren't really interested. So he parlayed the sort of Cold War paranoia over bioterrorism into the creation of the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which he very cleverly named in that military sort of term. You know, the CIA had come about before that, so this was a sort of a medical CIA. And uh, there was widespread fear during the Korean War that the communists were going to, uh, you know, spread anthrax from airplanes and poison our water. And so he got funding for the EIS to have these young doctors being ready to go at a moment's notice to investigate whether, in fact, we had had a, a biological warfare event. It didn't happen for another 50 years, but when it did happen in 2001 with anthrax letters, uh, it was EIS officers who investigated it. So that's the short answer. Was that like an ulterior motive for him at the time? Was he using that to leverage getting funding to be able to start this for what he thought was actually an emerging field, not a dying field? Yeah, he he no no question that he did use it as leverage to create the program. On the other hand, he really did believe that biological warfare was a terrifying and real possibility. So he wasn't being cynical about it. Yeah. It's just that it didn't happen for a long time. What about his uh, training and mission assigning strategies? Those were pretty unique at the time. We have a quote uh, that you listed in your book, and we'll read it right here. It says, he would often refer to his young EIS members. He would say, throw them overboard, see if they can swim, and if they can't, throw them a life ring, pull them out, and then throw them in again. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what he did. Now, his philosophy was to send out a first-year EIS officer, green behind the ears, usually with a second-year officer who had gone through this for a year. And... I mean, this is still pretty much true. I mean, they have this enormous backup back at the CDC, so they can call for help. But basically, they're on their own, and and the joke is that they become instant experts on the airplane as they're flying to whatever it is. You know, they're reading frantically about everything. And the good news is they usually do become (laughs) experts, at least more expert than the people who are dealing with the particular uh, outbreak that's happening, whether it be anthrax or polio or malaria or some completely unknown thing, such as what turned out to be hantavirus in the Four Corners or AIDS or Ebola. It was EIS officers who were dealing, or toxic shock syndrome. Um, they're the ones who are dealing with all of these things. You know, well, there's something about sending in the young guys without that much experience who are green, who they don't know something, and so if you don't know it, you're going to have to discover it, and that's probably an effective way of really solving the problem sometimes. Yeah, I mean, they're very well trained in epidemiological methods and trying to determine, you know, number one, is there an epidemic happening? And then going on sort of a fishing expedition and using their knowledge of uh, infectious diseases, toxins. You know, if it's a very short incubation period, it's more likely to be a toxin. So it's not like they don't know anything. And they've, they undergo a very intensive training program for the month of July every year. Um, but then they also have all these people who had been through the EIS in years past who tended to be their supervisors. So it's a wonderful intergenerational kind of a program. Okay. Well, there have been in the past some ethical issues in some of the field work, uh, especially in the 1950s. Can you comment on that about the hepatitis vaccine testing? Yeah. I interviewed an EIS officer who had given a hepatitis A and B, although they didn't know that's what they didn't call them that at that time. They called it uh, serum hepatitis, which was hepatitis B. Um, they gave it intentionally to prisoners and to people in mental institutions. It's horrible, and we all know it's horrible now, and they should have known it was horrible then. They, 
they didn't know that hepatitis B caused, you know, could cause cirrhosis of the liver and kill people years later. Um, but yeah, it, it was pretty bad. Um, and there were some a few other things like that in the book. On the other hand, that's what everybody did in those days. It was not unique to the EIS. That's fascinating. Why don't we get a little bit into some of the notable history of emerging infections? You mentioned the hantavirus outbreak back in uh, 93. What I really found interesting about this in your book, as you described it, was what appeared to be uh, this great blend of info sources that the officers utilized from virology testing to getting the input from the Navajo tribal elders. Can you tell us a little about that case? Because it's just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed several EIS people who were involved in it or EIS alums. And just the background for those of you who don't remember this, um, this uh, this was killing young athletes. Um, there was a couple who lived together. Both of them were Navajos, and the man and woman were like in their early twenties. They were long distance runners, and they suddenly couldn't breathe and basically drown in their own fluids. Nobody knew what caused it. They, the, it was a combination of epidemiology and laboratory work that identified it as a hantavirus, uh, which was very odd because usually they didn't have that impact. So it came to be known as pulmonary hantavirus syndrome. And it was the uh, Navajo elders who pointed them in the right direction by saying, you know, this has happened before. I think it was like 1918 and 1933, and it was in years when they had a very heavy rainfall and they had a big pine nut harvest, which meant that there was a large rodent population. And it turns out that this virus was carried by deer mice, and one of the EIS officers who was uh, part Navajo was the one who listened to them. So a lot of these things... uh, a lot of EIS officers act like anthropologists, and nowadays some of them are anthropologists. And so I think one of the lessons to be taken away from this is to you know, listen to people carefully. Don't just come in high and mighty and think you know everything. That's good advice for any doctor. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or find us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. We're talking with Mark Pendergrast about his really interesting book, Inside the Outbreak. So look at the elite medical detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Service. This should be a TV series. Well, you know what? It's been optioned for a TV series. I just signed the contracts for it this morning, so I'm quite excited about it. That doesn't mean it will be one. But uh, Wait, Matt know. and I are looking for roles. We would like starring <laughs> roles. We're really good looking. We're also good. really desperate for right. TV roles. So. <laughs> That's good. Don't That's let that good. factor into your decision. Right. No. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep you in mind. <laughs> On the back burner, if you will. Well, one thing that I really found great about this book was the variety of cases. I mean, you go from case to case to case, and there's just a myriad of diseases and locations around the world that you cover. And it really, help, I think, paints a really nice portrait of just how broad uh, the experience and necessary expertise is among these EIS officers. It's, it's really astonishing, the range of, of uh, not only infectious diseases, but chronic diseases, and then you know, just human behavior, like your salt that you were talking about, uh, would come under their purview as well. And probably is coming right You're gonna now. You're going to take my salt away? No. Well, it's about uh, time. I think it really is now. Tom Frieden the new head of the CDC, was an EIS officer and uh, is a big anti-salt guy. So, sorry, watch out. You better 
start hoarding your salt. Well, he's not <laughs> taking my chocolate. I'll tell you that. Or I'm not going to be in your show. I <laughs> agree. You, you keep your chocolate. Okay. I'm keeping my chocolate. <laughs> it seems to me you have to be careful about confounding factors in these studies, as you well know. So the people who are eating chocolate may be eating it because they are depressed and it, it's comforting them, not because it's making them depressed. An association doesn't necessarily mean a correlation. See, we need a, a detective from the EIS to investigate this. Yeah, it's definitely it's an important thing to put in. And I know that you've referenced that several times in your book where you had a number of cases that could have leaned that way, where there could have been causations made that were only correlations and could have led to all sorts of public uh, mishaps. One of which actually, you know, got a little bit of attention from you. It was part of the what you called the year of living dangerously back in 76. And I think People look back at the number of things that happened in the same year, and they wonder if maybe uh, we acted a little bit too quickly from the CDC's side. Yeah, it was sort of a perfect storm of problems for the CDC. What happened was in February, a, an 18-year-old private uh, named David Lewis went on a, a five-mile march uh, early in the morning. He didn't feel good. He had some sort of a flu bug. He collapsed, and he died. And when they looked at his uh uh, what had killed him, they couldn't identify the flu virus. They sent it to the CDC, and it turned out to be H1N1, otherwise known as swine flu. And they hit the panic button for fairly good reason, because, you know, the 1918 flu had also been H1N1, had killed 20 million people worldwide, at least, and uh, it specialized in young soldiers. So here it was happening again. Um they did hit the panic button too much, in my opinion, um, because, uh, you know, there were several EIS-type alums who said, hold on a second, yes, you should make the vaccine, but you should stockpile it. You shouldn't administer it to everybody until there's more evidence that this is really going to be uh, a pandemic or even an epidemic. Um, but the general thought was that it would be very difficult to administer it, to, to get it into so many arms in a very short period of time, and you were better off doing prevention. And people still argue about this. I mean, there really was no simple answer to it. So many times the public health people are damned if they do and damned if they don't, you know. If they hadn't done anything and something had to, Anyway, I'm not trying to come down on one side or the other. People can read it for themselves. But it's a fascinating, I think it's a great chapter, because the uh, right in the middle of all this, when the uh, insurance companies had refused to give insurance to the vaccine makers, who were then consequently refusing to make the vaccine, and suddenly all these uh, legionnaires in Philadelphia started to die. And this was a bicentennial year, big patriotism. Was this, you know, some sort of bioterrorism from the evil people trying to get the good American soldiers and their veterans. Well, it turned, and everybody thought it was swine flu. And so they, the, the Congress passed indemnification for the insurance companies. They went forward the campaign. But it turns out it was Legionnaire's disease, which they couldn't figure out for a long time either. And in the middle of all this, Ebola came for the first time in Zaire. And EIS officers go deal with that. And that, that was an interesting thing because... There were two two EIS officers going over, uh, and one of them, uh, halfway there, when, when they got to Geneva and were, were uh, talking to people at the World Health Organization, he freaked out and said, I can't do it, and he went home. Uh, so they're not always totally brave. <laughs> he went home for his chocolate is why he went home. <laughs> he went or home maybe so he the Ebola. Die. I mean, this, this thing, <laughs> it looked like it was 100% fatal. Nobody knew what it was. Yeah. 
It's hard to look back and blame somebody like that, although it only gives more testament to how brave the others are that actually go into the hot zones. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, but we want to make sure we talk a little bit about what you call the EIS legacy. Yeah, you know, I have the book open to this part. I wanted to, this is my, this is part of my campaign to get somebody. Let me just read you a couple of examples of what they said. I'm blessed to be part of the EIS cycle, Amanda Sue Nisker said. For every outbreak the media hears about, there are so many more that never happened because we did our job. Kay Kreiss recalled thinking, this is the best job I'm ever going to have with infinite backup and no administrative responsibility. Uh-huh. No administrators. No administrators. <laughs> there you go. Finally, being dropped into an, epi- an outbreak, given the authority to investigate it and do the detective work, then apply that knowledge to curbing the current outbreak and preventing future ones, there's no better work in the world, Scott Holmberg said. So... I think that's a pretty good testimony. I mean, these, these are the guys who've been there, done that, and uh, I heard this over and over and over again. So I think it's a good program. Um, you know, there were some people who criticized it for being too elitist. You know, they all think that they're, they're God's gift to the world, blah, blah, blah. But I found it to be uh, a very good program, and the people that I met... Uh, uh, some of them I've become very, you know, good, close friends with. I, I really uh, like them. Well, I'll join. <laughs> <laughs> you might right. be a little bit outside the age bracket, but I might actually be in there. I, well, I hear the know, average is around 34 years. people in their early 50s. Oh, all right. I act like I'm 14 most of the time. <laughs> you sound like you'd fit right in. <laughs> but the average age now is about 34. Okay. Um, it used to be when it, when it first started, it was all white male doctors who were in their late twenties, or almost all. Now it's over half women, um, and uh, about twenty percent uh, minorities or ethnic groups, and probably about ten or fifteen percent come from foreign countries. It's really quite a diverse group. That's great. Well, listen, thank you for being here. Our guest today has been fellow chocolate lover Mark Pendergrast. Uh, milk or dark, Mark? Oh, I like dark. Oh, you can have it. All the dark. Under my own heart. Uh, Milk for me. Author of (laughs) Inside the Outbreaks. Please get the book. Please read it. Please consider joining. Mark, thanks for being a guest on Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD. Thank you. And put us on your show, please, on the show. Thank you. Oh, right, the TV show. (laughs) I'm I'm losing weight for it and everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's working hard. All right. (laughs) Or hardly working, one of the two. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent stuff. That was great. I think it's a good book. It's got the nicest cover I've ever seen in a book. I'm totally jealous after being an author myself. You know, it really should be a TV series. These stories are fascinating. They are fascinating. I'm glad that somebody's going out there to show just how much goes into what they're doing. You really don't hear about most of the good things that they do. So I think it's great. Public health doesn't really get a lot of accolades. No, it doesn't. Maybe a little fear of paranoia is good. All right, now to the ReachMD Forum, Matt. This email that came to us the other day from a patient was telling of where healthcare access may be heading down the road. I'm going to read part of it now, all right? right. This is a quote. Hi, I've been getting worse for 30 years, and I'm not sure my diagnosis of exclusion, porphyria, is it. As an experiment, I put a description of my problems on a website two days ago to make it easy for a doctor to have a quick look at. I'm trying to be proactive since my quality of life isn't great. I'm a very effective conservationist and would like to be able to get back to it, but that would mean a better way to manage my health conditions, end quote. Interesting. So apparently the patient put up his own case history on the site diagnose-me.org. And here's the kicker. He's offered a cash reward to any provider who can make an accurate diagnosis that will lead to better targeted treatment and recovery for him. 
Now, his rationale is that a lack of access to care because of limited options with his HMO compels him to open this public forum of incentivized consultations. And, you know, we just need to make a disclaimer right here that obviously we at ReachMD have neither evaluated this case or this person's website, but we are presenting it to our loyal listeners, all of you, as a current social and medical communications issue, because it's definitely interesting. It's just that we want to make sure that others know we're not endorsing what's going on here, right. but we are, we are talking or about it. Or giving medical opinions about it. So what do you think, Michael? I mean, is this an example of a renegade move or a sign of the times? I looked at the website, went over it briefly. Okay. <clears throat> My comment is this guy needs to be on House MD. It's complex. Mm. Um, it was difficult for me. He claims it's an, init- an initiative by a regular person to be well, but I'm not sure about this, Matt. That my first impression was it struck me as like this guy has so many complaints. I don't know whether they're somaticized emotional illnesses or real illness, and he really needs someone to take a look at him. And I mean look at him, talk to him, not read a website. It's like the danger of email. You know, we've always talked about this. You get an email, you don't get communication, you don't have physical contact. Why do we think doctors do physical exams in person Mm -hmm. and not over the television, you know, not not over the phone. It doesn't work for me. i got to be with the person. I think that it's complex, but it's something that may be happening in the future. Yeah, it definitely looks like it could be a sign of the times. I mean, what's to prevent anyone else from jumping into this and kind of going out to the World Wide Web and saying, diagnose me, I'll give you a cash reward. How now, much, of course, by the way? How much is he offering? It's up to about $1,000 is what he's saying. It's a lot of Hershey so, bars. <laughs> it's something that kind of scares me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. I'll take it. And right. I guess that is going to do it for us here on Second Opinion Live. Michael's got a big bag of chocolate-coated saltines that need to be thrown away right now. Keeping things G-rated around here, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. You can also follow us on your iPhone, maybe your iPad, too. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thanks to the guys in the control room. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed in to ReachMDXM160 and put down those M&Ms.